Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, it is a great honor to have Ashley Sadler joining us on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Ashley is the Director of Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Education for the Aurora Public Schools in Aurora, Colorado, and an active board member for the PEBC. Ashley, it's such an honor to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I know that you are quite familiar with the PEBC teaching framework and the ways in which the PEBC is really striving to ensure that each and every educator from pre-service all the way through retirement is empowered to teach for agency, equity, and understanding. And you have held just many, many positions in schools and in education, and you've had the opportunity to support students in a variety of roles. So if you don't mind, let's start off our conversation today by just learning a little bit more about you and your beliefs around education, and then what do you think phenomenal teaching looks like and sounds like? Absolutely. Well, I have been in Aurora's public schools since 2008. I am a product of APS in that um, I attended part of middle school here and graduated from Gateway High School um, and returned to the district in 2008 as a school social worker. And that mental health field and having that lens um, really allowed me to enter into administration Um, with a perspective that I think most people don't have. Um, And so being able to see education and teaching and learning from the mental health side, um, I had some uh, administrators that I worked with who really encouraged me to go into administration, but I didn't feel like I was ready at that point. So I went back to school to get a master's of ed um, and really learn about what was happening in the classroom, but then still keeping that mental health lens, because I really, truly believe in um, supporting people, not just students, but supporting our teachers, our classified staff, really from where they are and supporting them in um, what they're struggling with and what their challenges are. And that perspective really helped me when I transitioned into admin. Uh, So I was an assistant principal in another district and then moved to being an assistant principal here in APS transition to the principalship um, after being asked to take on that leap. And that was, um, that was magnificent. I absolutely loved being a principal um, in my building. Um, and based on the work that I had done with the multilingual learners in my building, I was asked to take that and turnkey it to the district. And so that was an awesome opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So Um, I became the director of CLDE and support uh, 22,000 of our 40,000 students that are in Aurora Public Schools. So we support 22,000 multilingual learners uh, throughout the district. Um, And it's just, it's an exciting place to be, an exciting time to be there. Ashley, that is just 
so interesting to hear your perspective. You're coming from that field of social work and really focused on people and their needs. When we think about schools, we really are in the people business. We're supporting people. There are, you know, so many different people interacting. It's such an interdependent field. Um, I was really struck by what you said, though, about multilingual learners and really taking your experience from the school in which you were a principal into then scaling that to the district. Um, I can't wait to hear a little bit more about that expertise that you have and this perspective, because I'm sure you're still learning and growing. But let's think a little bit about this idea of phenomenal teaching. For you, what does that look like and sound like? And then let's dive into multicultural education. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, it's important to note that when we say phenomenal teaching, we're not talking about perfect teaching or errorless teaching. Um, It really is around being reflective and being responsive to the students that are in front of you. And that reflective stance um, as part of phenomenal teaching is being able to Uh, make adjustments and respond and adjust um, because teaching is an art and um, there are times when we cannot control what happens with the students in front of us. And so one of the things that I always loved when I went in as um, a principal was watching a teacher who made some mistakes and said, okay, I need to stop this lesson and adjust because this is not going the way that I want it. I love that because that meant that A, they saw, they recognized, they did not just watch the train derail. They did something about it and course corrected. And it's not about it course correcting to perfection, but the teacher who was reflective were able to meet later and say, okay, tell me what you were thinking in that moment. Tell me about why you made the adjustments that you did. In those moments, that's where growth happens so that they can continue to uh, build to be a master teacher. Um, I think that one of the areas, um, another area of phenomenal teaching is around being responsive to the students that are in front of you. And in order to be responsive, it's important to know who your students are, beyond um, some superficial information, but really spending time with them, understanding what their passions and their goals and aspirations are. And that's not just for our secondary students. I mean, for our five-year-olds, for our three and four-year-olds, our ECE group, it's important to get to know who they are as individual beings um, and what they have to offer and making sure that they are represented in that class in various ways. Um, we know that, you know, that, that research tells us that when a student has that strong relationship with at least just one person in the building, it changes their whole perspective on school. And so b- being able to build those relationships um, is also part of phenomenal teaching. And I think also being able to learn from others. So we um, in Aurora Public Schools have always had this philosophy and culture of having an open door policy, um, knowing that people are gonna come into your classroom. Now at this point in time, that's not really possible, but I always advised against slam clickers. And those are the people that would go into their classroom, slam the door and click it lock. And you know, I don't want anyone in my classroom but um, that is not where learning happen, it happens. And so there's this aspect of being open to having other people in your classroom 
not in a in a critical lens um, in terms of a malicious way, but really to say, I want you to to examine and have a critical look of my practices so that I can grow. And I then want to go into your classroom and see what I can learn from you. That shared learning opportunity is something that we often don't capitalize on um, because there's just not a lot of time. Um, And so being strategic and intentional about making time to go into each other's classrooms, to learn strategies from others, um, and develop in that way is huge. And and one area that we can do that now is by videotaping and being vulnerable enough to allow ourselves to be taped so that then we can learn. Um, those are the, the areas that I see in terms of phenomenal teaching. Wow. So when you think about those qualities of really being willing to to make adjustments to meet students' needs or being able to really get to know students on a personal level and then interacting and collaborating with colleagues in a way in which you can have growth you know, uh, for the whole system seems right. to be some of the hallmarks that you mentioned the phenomenal teaching. And I know at the PBC, we would absolutely agree. And I think that a lot of those attributes that you mentioned really reflect our stance towards learning. And some of the learning that we're engaged in right now is really trying to think deeply about equity. And so at the PABC right now, like educators all across the country, we are trying to figure out what do we know about equity? What don't we know? What might we need to relearn? And at the PBC, we've been engaged in a, a partnership with Promise 54. We're engaged in some internal book studies. We're working alongside teachers who are really impacting change either here in the Denver metro area or across the country. And we've been tapping into incredible experts like you. And I know that your experience um, as the director of multicultural education, you've had the opportunity to think about supporting students and really creating opportunities for equity, not only in one building, but in the in a district. And so I'm wondering if, you know, if we can kind of dive into that work and um, if you can share maybe your perspective on multicultural education, what is it and what does it mean today? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I always want to go sometimes to the non-examples first and thinking through what we typically go to when we talk about multicultural education and why it's important to engage in critical multicultural education. A lot of times when uh, we just see this term and take it at face value, we say, okay, I want to make sure that I've celebrated this student's culture, made sure that um, that uh, celebration is on the wall, made sure that I recognized, um, you know, this religion or whatnot. And it's, that is one part of it. So recognition is part of it. Um, But that can be very narrow um, and very pedantic in its approach that we become very surface level with uh, multicultural education and what we need to do is go deeper beyond that surface level. And one area where we can really deepen it uh, relates to Sonia Nieto's work um, around critical multiculturalism in that um, we are deepening our understanding 
of what a text or what an approach is bringing to our students. One example of that is when we look at um, any sort of work that we're putting in front of students, any sort of text, um, going beyond just, okay, have I made sure that there are black students here? Have I made sure that there's white students? Have I made sure that there's racial diversity? But again, in knowing who the students are in your classroom, how does the material that you are presenting reflect linguistic diversity? How does the material that you present reflect gender diversity and socioeconomic diversity um, to and, and exceptionality diversity so that the students that are in your class can see themselves in the materials that you're presenting to them? Um, we know that students are more engaged when they can see themselves um, in what's being presented. And an area of that is for the teacher to move beyond and outside of their comfort zone. So as they're planning, if they find that they're continuing to kind of lean towards the same type of work, one area where you know I've talked about is you know, maybe your literacy lesson, if you were to look for, I want to look for some Native American authors and really push myself outside of my comfort zone so that I can expand the thinking of my students and how that can transfer into other content. So for example, if this is a literacy lesson and we're talking about secondary students, then how can that teacher be planning with the social studies teacher so that that's, they can and the students can make connections because you have chosen a text that is outside of the norm. And we're in a space right now knowing that teachers are uh, very inundated with learning new technologies and new approaches, there still is an opportunity to take a step back and say, I have the time or I have the ability to supplement some of the material that my school has suggested. So I'm going to branch outside and push to be able to incorporate some more diverse authors and some more diverse perspectives. And so when a teacher is able to look at text and say, within the diversity of my classroom or within the diversity that exists in the world, because maybe your classroom isn't as diverse as you'd like it to be, um, it's important for the teacher to be the mechanism to deliver uh, that diverse thinking. And it starts with them being able to open their eyes to see um, things through a, through a different perspective. Wow. So, you know, just in listening to you, I'm thinking a lot about the PEBC teaching framework. And one of our strands is about planning. And when we think about planning, we think about the, the purpose of our plans, really, like what are the content goals that we might have, or what are the some of the process, you know, the strategies that we want students to be able to know and understand and apply. We also think about people and who are we planning for and the processes. And so when I'm thinking about what you just shared, I'm thinking a lot about that contextual planning. And you know, you mentioned that we need to move beyond awareness, but that we need to also move into selecting and refining materials that can connect to learners, their schema, their heritage, their language. But then I think there's also this other layer that you began to mention, and that is being able to help students explain the relevance of their learning 
in connection to their own cultural context. Right. And, and in, a, in a district like ours where we have students that speak 160 different languages and come from over 130 different countries, uh, being able, I mean, that, that's rich, right? Mm-hmm. And there may be, you know, we have schools where there, you know, could be 30 different languages spoken in one school. Um, and so it might be difficult to attend to all of those languages, but just being able to expose students to something different, um, it just, it's, it's phenomenal when, when they um, are, are introduced to, to bigger and broader concepts. Um, I just, I love being able to learn about students. I went to a, a middle school when we were still kind of in a face-to-face situation you know, and just ask, like, he was a, a newcomer, so he was in the country for less than a year, and just asking him, like, tell me, tell me about your country, tell me about where you're from, tell me about what you, you did, tell me about what your experiences are, are now, like, here in this space, um, and even just being able to take that in and make those connections to that student's learning experiences from, you know, this was a sixth grader. So he had been in his country for some time. This was very new to him. Um, the United States was very new to him. Colorado was very new to him. Snow was very new to him. Um, and so just, you know, we, we don't want to ever pigeonhole or limit um, what students can interact with. And so even if it's not all of the languages, but being able to highlight some of those it's, it's just, it's phenomenal. And it, it's, it just gets me all excited. <laughs> I can tell, I can just, I could you know, feel your energy coming through our conversation today. Um, so take us into another example or two. When we think about, you know, teachers are really grappling right now, I think with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really thinking about what are the strategies? What can I do in my classroom? Or if I'm a school leader, how can I create a context that is inclusive and honors a variety of cultures, a variety of perspectives. You just gave us one great example, which seems like something that we should all be able to do, which would sit down, look a student in the eyes and hear his or her story and how their story is connecting to their, to the, to their current place in the world. What else? I think there's a, another perspective and this is going to seem, uh, very pedestrian, but I, I think there's value in it that may not be happening as much, especially in our current context. And that is giving students an outlet to share their own thinking. Um, in a virtual space, it's very easy for it to be very teacher driven. Um, I think there's this level of wanting to have more, even more control. I mean, teachers are type A people typically, you know, in general. Um, But I think that it gets amplified in this remote space because there's so many unknowns, right? Um, And so allowing or giving the opportunity for students to share their own voice and that can really elicit uh, getting to know students and, and incorporating to say like, am I really meeting the needs of my kids? And so here are some examples is we know that in a remote space, kids are not most likely to, to talk. Like they just, they, even my own children, like I'm like, 
ask, ask the teacher a question. And my son's like, ah, oh, no way am I doing that. <laughs> and so, you know, they might be more inclined to send an email, you know, after, um, and, and, and it's, it's out of context at that point because, you know, they moved on to another class. And so thinking about opportunities to utilize technology, uh, Flipgrid is an ex- a great example of how, you know, students can have more, um, uh, intentional conversations with a peer that can be recorded and sent to the teacher so the teacher can hear um, this more structured talk that's happening without it being in a full group. Um, or using um, you know mechanisms like Padlet or um, some of those online uh, writing features so that we can get some of that written um, uh, uh, get some of that that written uh, experience and, and practice and, um, and then teachers can take that and it's, you know, they don't have to have their names attached to it, but the teacher gets insight into kind of what the students are thinking and provide feedback to, you know, the class or to those individual small groups, um, based on what they've written. Um, I think just being able to provide opportunities for kids to, to dialogue um, in ways that are as authentic as possible. We know that that this context is just, it's it's difficult. It's difficult for a lot of us. Um, And, you know, kids kind of feel that anxiety and that comes out a lot. And so being able to diversify the way that we are looking for feedback from students is important. we know that students who are new to the country, they're still trying on language. Um, they're not as comfortable. Um, so they may not, you know, speak, you know, into the microphone or speak online. Um, but they mo- might be more likely to use maybe the independent chat feature with their teachers. So just how are we getting the students' thoughts and ideas out in a way that's comfortable for them and providing those platforms um, in which they can do that? Wow. So really thinking about all students need an opportunity to express their own thinking. And in the current context, with so many students being in a remote environment, we need to really be even more mindful about trust and safety and creating opportunities for rehearsal or creating opportunities to express ourselves in ways in which we feel comfortable, particularly if we were a newcomer. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as a teacher, you've given me just a handful of great ideas. I've been really thinking about, okay, I'm going to move beyond acknowledging simple recognition. I'm going to you know, take the time to really, really get to know my students well and know, know their own personal histories. I think what you mentioned about planning is critical. What are the materials? How am I being a critical kind of creator of curriculum that really shows a variety of perspectives and a variety of experiences so that my students feel like it is a place where they can express themselves and express their own ideas. Is there anything else that you'd want to add to that that's just really top of mind, especially at the beginning of the year? Um, I would say, you know, we, we talk a lot. We, well, we did talk a lot about grace um, in quarter four in the spring um, And we haven't heard, and I just, when I, I mean the proverbial we, um, haven't heard as much of that because, you know, we've assumed that, you know, students have devices, you know, they have uh, internet, 
parents have figured out, you know, who's going to be doing what when. And, and that's not the case across the board. And um, everyone needs this, a sense of grace at this point. Um, and understanding that not everyone has it figured out, but knowing that there might be some more flexibilities that a teacher has in um, what they're able to put in front of students, um, this, this provides a, a great time to say, I'm going to dig into some things that maybe I didn't have a chance to dig into last year. Um, put some things in front of students that you know, might be outside of the norm, um, provide some ideas to my team as we're planning um, on some materials that that might not be the, the typical materials that are used. So, yeah. So really some outside of the box thinking right now as well, really kind of in some ways, really giving ourselves permission or grace to try out some new ideas in this new space and to collaborate with our colleagues in different ways. Absolutely. That collaboration is so important. It is. And I know that teachers are just clamoring for it right now. And <clears throat> even working remotely, they're still collaborating. They're still around their tables, if you will, just sharing ideas and materials. So as a virtual table, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is a virtual table and they have it all spread out in their houses. You can see it, you know, all across You're the right. Country. <laughs> so let's go a little bit deeper because I know that we want to um, really think about this idea of becoming a more multiculturally competent teacher or building leader. There are some other aspects of multicultural education that we or I might need to be more aware of. And really thinking about doing some of the inner work and really some of the introspection around what do we know and what don't we know. And you know, when you met with PBC, you really opened um, you know, our minds and gave us an opportunity to think about identity in, in different ways than we had before and to think about how that might be playing out in buildings or districts. And I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind explaining that concept to our listeners and sharing some examples with us so that we can not only think about our classrooms, but then also think about our, our schools and our districts, our systems to think about really broadening that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of leads directly into what we are experiencing as a country and the need to have some critical conversations about race, ethnicity, bias, um, and how that's impacting our students because we cannot neglect to think through how what's playing out in our world and our country is impacting our kids. Um, and, and not just, I think we, we can't just look at it as, okay, let me just attend to the black kids in my class because those are the ones that, like everyone is being impacted in some way. So, so I just wanna start with that's kind of a lens in which you know some of what we're gonna talk about regarding hegemony plays out. Um, so hegemony comes from this um, Italian Marxist, and I'm not Italian at all, but his name is Antonio Gramsci. And it's this concept that basically we have been consens consensual acceptors of what has played out in our world. Um, that we accept things consensually without really questioning why they exist or why they function the way that they do. 
Um, one example is around the school calendar. Um, the, the school calendar exists where we go to school in August, we take a Thanksgiving break, we take a winter break, which just so happens to follow the Christian calendar of Christmas, even though we don't call it Christmas break, we call it winter break. But that break, you know, it exists in a specific moment in time. Um, but the way that we function as a school system is one of those hegemonic ideas that we don't really question why they are the way they are. It's just how it's always been. Um, another example is around the standard of beauty. What we as a society consider as beautiful um, are part of hegemonic practices um, or hegemonic ideas that um, these things have just been put out into the world and into society. And only recently have we had some folks start to push back and question, but that's very much recently. You have decades and centuries of people just kind of accepting this is what is beautiful. This is what I'm comfortable with and not really in the past questioning why. So we're at a place now where we're starting to uncover and unveil some of these hegemonic practices, and now we've given a name to it, right? It's hegemony. Hegemony is the concept that um, we've accepted certain things as status quo that have been put in place by the dominant culture to keep the dominant culture in power. So there's that power play, but they don't, the dominant culture doesn't say, I'm going to rule this way. I'm going to make you think this way. There are certain subtleties that happen over time that then make it so that this becomes common practice. And um, it's, it's a point at which we just don't question because why? Why would we question, you know, the school calendar? It's been that way for years. Like there's been no reason to question it. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a matter of control. So how does the dominant culture keep that control? Well, they make sure that others are following these practices. And so when we think about, um, I had a, a principal and not in Aurora Public Schools, I just wanna mention that, um, but I worked with a principal who would look at applicants and where they went to school. And that's how he determined whether they would get an interview or not. So it was his value of, okay, I think that this school is important, therefore you're deserving of an interview. Well, when we have those kind of ideas of like, like why is that school better than, than this school? Like we, we have been conditioned, right? That certain schools have more value. Like you come from an Ivy League school, surely because you paid $100,000 for your education, that that is worth more than the, the state level college. Like those are some of those hegemonic ideas that kind of get put out there and that we, we accept and we embrace and we perpetuate. Um, and so my, my call to action, if you will, is really around uh, being, pulling the, the layer back, pulling the iron curtain away from what we've always done and examining why we're doing what we're doing. It's, it's, 
it's questioning. And sometimes, and I will tell you, questioning, There's there are people who feel threatened by like you're trying to challenge my authority or, or whatnot. And it's no, no, no. I, I just, I, I want to know why we are doing the things that we're doing. Um, and how this plays out in the classroom. And I, I've seen this happen, especially as a school social worker. Um, but what we would do are these things called pink and blues. I don't know if you, so the pink and blues are the student placement cards where, you know, I have all the students data. I make sure that the next teacher has all the students data, but I put on there as a teacher, watch out for Jimmy and his mother. Okay. Because Jimmy and Jimmy's mama are really going to give you the business. Okay. And, and I put all this information on there about Jimmy and I give that to the next teacher to say, I have forewarned you. He's coming. Be, be careful. When I became a principal, I said, oh, uh-uh. like we, we can't, we can't do this. And here are the reasons why we can't, like we have to figure out another way to transition students because A, Jimmy has a relationship with you that he may not have with his next teacher. And he deserves the opportunity to develop that relationship with you in his own way. You are a different person than his previous teacher as well. So the dynamic right there makes it different. Jimmy can grow a lot over the summer. So who Jimmy is right now as a student might be very different in three months when he comes back. And then when we think about asset focus, asset based and deficit based thinking, when we present someone on a the top of a garbage can and say, you know, this here, here's this amazing meal. And it's like, but you've presented it to me on a garbage can. Why would I accept this as being quality? So when I present this student to you and I fill your head with all of these things that I ex maybe experience, but may not be your experience, I've already tainted this relationship. And so that's just a practice that we always did. Like we just, we always did it. It was never really questioned. And we started talking about as a school, how can we transfer and prepare the next teacher without potentially damaging the relationship that the student gets to build with the teacher and the teacher gets to build with the student? So that's an example of a hegemony in the school. It's an example of bias and how we try to attack and shift bias is an example of being asset focused and asset based. And it's an example of really making systemic change for the benefit of students. Wow. So, I mean, just that example, and you think about just like the, the Gollum effect research from the 1960s, but you know, since then, we still have been doing pink and blues in a lot of different buildings and we know better. But like you said, it's a practice that's been accepted for a long time in a lot of places. And so your suggestion for leaders and educators who want to really hone in on diversity, equity, inclusion is to ask why, is to look at the systems and structures and to ask, why are we doing this? Who is it benefiting? Who is it not benefiting? And is there a better way? Right, right. And and that's not to say that we decided to abandon the practice of sharing student data, right? I mean, that's important. It's it's very important to make sure that the teachers have data by which to build 
upon and, and what the composition is of their classroom. Absolutely. But that wasn't the sole driver of how we constructed classrooms, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and then also we changed our language to say, um, what, what are the opportunities that the student has? What um, are some, what are the assets that this student brings? And our, our school counselor really helped with this language as well around, um, okay, so you might see the student as being bossy, like that might be the term that we would use, but being an advocate for themselves is how, you know, we have transitioned that so that that new that teacher, that next year teacher can say, okay, I know that this student is going to advocate for not only herself, but for her peers. Um, and so how can I utilize that in my classroom space? So data, you know, is, is important to, to keep, but it's, you know, how can we provide what teachers need, but then without kind of adding our own biases into the information that's being passed. Thank you. And I just, I love thinking about what are all the assets that our students hold and what are they bringing to us each year? And sharing student data and information in that way, I think can change a student's entire experience. Their entire school year will be different and it will feel different. Yes. And, and that, again, when we talk about how it takes one adult, a connection with one adult to change a student's experience um, with school, I would ask students when I'd meet with them, um, you know, around any behavior concerns, who's one adult? And I wouldn't even say teacher. Who's one? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a classroom teacher. Who is one adult that you are connected to in this building? just one. And if ever a student said, I can't think of one person, A, it just broke my heart. But B, then, you know, that became my role as a principal was to say, who is it that I'm going to make sure that this student gets connected with so that that can continue to build? Ashley, thank you so much. You have given us so much to think about today. And I have one last question for you. You get the last one. All right. Okay. (laughs) What is your hope for the 2021 school year? My hope is that everyone is safe and healthy. Um, My kids are in a district where they are doing a hybrid approach. And so they are in person. And I am literally one of those parents that's like, drop, get in the shower right now. And, you know, don't touch anything. Don't touch the dog. Don't touch the cat. Like, (laughs) do not touch any animals or anything until you shower. And, and it's just, it's, it's a place where, you know, we, it's anxiety producing, but um, I just, I want to make sure that everyone is safe and healthy um, by the end of this school year and that we attend to that first. Um, our, our, our chief academic officer has this concept of care over content and really just making sure that everyone is is healthy and safe and you know talk about maslow's hierarchy of needs like let's just get to that that layer that first layer that basic layer um, and you know we can continue to build from there but that is my my hope and my desire is that we can 
um, really be starting a place of, of health and wealth in that sense um, so that we can start moving and towards tackling some of these other issues. Ashley, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your passion and your expertise with us today. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. Our nonprofit is able to provide free content for educators because of support from generous donors. If you would like to sponsor this podcast or make a donation, please visit our website at pebc.org. The PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Ward Hoffer. We offer customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.